Before we get into the scripture text in Romans this morning, I want to answer a couple of questions that will give us more insight and a better understanding into the meaning of what we just read. And the first question is this, why does the Apostle Paul talk so much about ancient Israel, especially in chapters 9 through 11? All these three chapters, the main focus is Israel. And the second question is this, why does Paul quote so much Old Testament scripture in his letter to the Romans? And so first of all, why so much about Israel? Chapters 9 through 11 are primarily about the failure of God's chosen people, the failure to find righteousness before God. Except for a remnant, they have rejected God's way of salvation and eternal life, and in the rest of the world, the Gentiles come into view in verse 24 of Romans chapter 9, and then the Gentiles stay in view the rest of the time, but Gentiles are secondary in Paul's attention in these three chapters. And the main issue again and again is, if Israel is God's chosen people, what went wrong? And why should it matter to us? What does it have to do with us? Why should we care in the 21st century about an ancient people in Bible times? And why should we care about Israel and the Jews today? There are several important answers to these questions, but I want to give you just two this morning. And the first answer is this. Why should we care about Israel? Why should we care about Israel? It's because God is not done with Israel. Uh, the first answer is summed up in the 25th verse of Romans chapter 11, the next chapter, the 11th chapter, the 25th verse of the 11th chapter. And Paul here reveals a mystery. Remember what a mystery is in Scripture? A mystery is something that was God's plan for the ages all along. It was his predetermined plan. It's something that God determined and planned before the foundation of the world, but it's been kept a mystery until now. And now he has revealed it. The mystery is a revelation of God's purposes. So in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, Paul reveals a mystery. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own est uh, estimation. Paul had just warned the Gentile believers in the previous verses about becoming proud and conceited and, and arrogant because they were grafted into the olive tree of God's people, and Israel was cut off. The Gentiles had been a wild olive, and they were grafted in, and they were flourishing while the branches of Israel had been broken off. And there's this tendency to think, we've got it all together, we've done it better, we are God's people now. And so they were becoming proud and arrogant in their thinking. And Paul is going to say, hey, there's no cause for the Gentiles to be arrogant about this, to think they succeeded because, and Israel failed, because Paul continues in verse 25, and here is the mystery. We could say here, as Paul does before, lo, I tell you a mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. The present hardening that we still live in this time of God's people, Israel, will only remain until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In simple terms, God is going to fulfill all his promises to Israel. He's not done with them. He will keep his covenant with them perfectly. And not every Jew is hardened against the gospel. 
It's a partial hardening. God still has a, a remnant. But Israel's unbelief will last only until the complete number of Gentiles chosen by God have come to salvation. As soon as the complete number of Gentiles chosen by God have come to salvation, God is going to soften their hearts. And Paul says there's coming a time future when all Israel will be saved. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. And who's the deliverer? The Lord Jesus Christ. He will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How are our sins taken away? There's only one way for a person to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and salvation. There's coming a time, probably during the tribulation period, when all the Jews living at that time are going to turn their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Why should we care about Jews in Israel today? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. If he doesn't keep his covenant with Israel, as Christians, <laughs> we're in a lot of trouble as well, right? And so God is a covenant-keeping God. He's not done with Israel, and his promises still stand. Secondly, we care about Israel because what goes on inside of us, each one of us spiritually, has gone on in Israel historically. What has gone on each, in each one of us spiritually has gone on in Israel historically. And I think this is one of the main reasons that Paul spends so much time on Israel. The story of Israel is told in the Old Testament. And we can see ourselves in that story, and we can see the world for what it is. If you want to know about your own spiritual condition before God as a human being, if you want to know what the greatest issues are for all the world, you can learn it from watching the history of Israel, as it's interpreted in the Bible. Just go to the Old Testament. One place we see how this works is in the third chapter of Romans, the 19th verse. If you want to go back to Romans chapter 3, the 19th verse. And here is, Paul is talking about the law, the law given through Moses. And he says, the law just doesn't apply to Israel, but it applies to the whole world. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Yes. So that what? Every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Here's the point. God deals with Israel and his law not just to make things plain to Israel, to make things plain to the whole world. God speaks to Israel so that every mouth may be stopped. Yours, mine, and everyone's else. Paul says we're all without excuse. Every mouth is stopped. Non-religious. Just read a, a survey yesterday that the non-religious are now the largest religious segment in American society. It's a statistical dead heat. Just over 23% of Americans say they have no religion. Just under that are the Catholics, and just under that, by a tenth of a point, are the evangelicals. So when it comes to religion, the largest three groups, the non-religious, are the fastest growing, and uh, they are the largest religious group. They don't have any religion. So whether you're non-religious, atheist, Hindu, Muslim, Jews, Christian, Buddhist, every mouth is stopped. We have nothing to say. We have no excuse before God. And so Israel is a microcosm of our own conscience. 
Israel, we can say, is a theater where we watch our own spiritual struggles and our human condition played out in history and learn what they mean and, and how to respond to them. For example, how do you know it's a bad idea to rebel against God and serve other gods? Just because the Ten Commandments say so? Well, let's just look how it worked out for Israel. <laughs> Go back and read it. You know, the, the, the northern kingdom was judged to the point they were pretty much totally, totally destroyed by the Assyrians. And then, then Judah was taken into captivity uh, by Babylon. And then look what happened to Babylon because they were harsh on Israel. And look what happened to the Assyrians and, and, and vice versa. So how do we know all these things? Not just because the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, because in Israel we know exactly what happens. And we know what happened among the other nations. Or how do we know that God is faithful and his loving kindness endureth forever? I got one King James there for a minute. Did you notice that? <laughs> Read the book of Ruth. Hesed. Loyal love. Kindness. And see God's loyal love to Ruth. See Ruth's loyal love to Naomi. And then Boaz's loyal love to Ruth. It's a beautiful love story, but it's not just a love story because this is how God deals with each one of us. Now, how do we know it's a bad idea to get on a boat and try to sail away to a faraway place when God has told you to do something else? <laughs> and you know where I'm going. And does that mean that God is done with you because you headed out in the wrong spot? Just ask Jonah. Jonah thought God was done with him. God says, yeah, I want to make a bet. <laughs> right. And this is one reason why the early church never gave up on the Old Testament. Even though Christ has come and fulfilled all the Old Testament hopes. And so you begin to see, this begins to answer the second question that I have this morning. Why does Paul quote the Old Testament so much? Why so much Old Testament scripture? In the letter to the Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament 58 times. 58 times, and some of those have several verses in that 58 times. More than any other New Testament book, Matthew is second in quoting the Old Testament, and that's 45 times. Why is the Old Testament quoted so often in the New Testament? And first of all, we, we go back to the historical record of, of human history with God in the Old Testament, and the first answer to that question is, we see that what was written was also written for us. While we're still in the book of Romans, go over to Romans chapter 15. 15th chapter, Romans, verse 4. Romans 15, 4 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, I, I've talked to people who say they have life verses. This is one of the verses that they try to, to live by. Uh, this is one of my life verses especially when God has given me a, a love for history and a love for biography and, and how God has worked in times past in people's lives and in very difficult situations. So that's why I'll, I'll, I'll promote the, the biography of, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or Eric Little or, or one of those others and, and love to read them because uh, Romans 15.4 tells us succinctly what the Old Testament has to do with us today. It says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
How many of us have turned when we're going through difficult times? We, we turn to Scripture in general, and other times we'll turn to particular stories, uh, uh, narratives. I don't like the word story because people today kind of think of a story as a made-up thing, you know. The, so the Bible stories, well, they're not really real, you know. So, so I, I go back to the, the, the official term, a narrative. You know, this is the account of what really happened. It was, it was written for our instruction so that when we go through tough times, and we all will, some very difficult times, we will persevere. We will be encouraged by God's word. And we will have hope. And that's why we should read and study the Old Testament, and that's why Paul quotes it so much. Secondly, why so much Old Testament scripture in Paul's letter to the Romans? Because scripture is required for a person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13, back in Romans chapter 10. Back to the 10th chapter of Romans, beginning at the 13th verse. Verse 13, where it starts, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Don't think of that as an official preacher of the church. Just somebody, that's just somebody who heralds the good news. A, a preacher. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Good news of good things. And then 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, for faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Some of the translations have hearing by the word of Christ and others have hearing by the word of God. And it just depends whatever ancient manuscript they, they picked because uh, it appears that the most ancient of the Greek manuscripts have hearing by the word of Christ and, and others have hearing by the word of God. But they're, they're really the same thing, aren't they? Because here's the point. Salvation and faith does not come by intuition. You know, I got this eternity thing all figured out or I just got an idea, this is it. Or it doesn't come by experience. You know, I, I found that this works best, you know, that this is, and, and by experience, I've had, you know, people say, well, I had an experience of Jesus, and it must have been true because of this and this, and I go, well, you know, what was Jesus like? Well, I, I don't know, but, you know, or it doesn't come by clever argument or by any other way, any other way than by hearing the word of God preached, taught, and explained. The purpose of evangelism is not to use clever human persuasion or, or devices to get a confession of faith. The purpose of evangelism, of sharing your faith, is to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, through whom the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and salvation to those who hear and accept the word of Christ. But how can someone believe in and trust in someone they know very little about? scripturally you have to show them Christ and you do that by showing them Christ in God's word what it says about Jesus Christ we need to open the word and explain who Christ is and what he has done and that's what really Paul is doing through the whole letter to the Romans he's using the Old Testament to explain Christ 
and to interpret Christ to us. And so Paul's letter to the Romans, in a real sense, is an expositional study of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament. And one more reason related to that for using Scripture, and this ties into this morning's text in Romans, Christ is the subject of the Old Testament, right? And so turn over to Luke chapter 24, Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter, beginning at verse 25. Luke chapter 24, the 25th verse. You'll recognize this account as when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ walked with the two disciples on the, two, on the road to Emmaus. The disciples had left early that Sunday morning. They were distraught. They thought Jesus was dead, dead forever. All their hopes, all their dreams were smashed. And Jesus comes, a stranger on the road to Emmaus, comes and starts walking with them. And Jesus prevented the disciples from recognizing him. As they told him about the crucifixion of Jesus, his burial, and the report of the empty tomb, and they'd gone to the tomb, but they did not see Jesus, we pick it up in verse 25 with how Jesus responds to them. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, listen to what Jesus says. did. Then beginning with Moses, Moses are the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And with all the prophets... We would say that's all the rest of the scripture. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The word translated explained here, from it we get the word hermeneutics. You ever heard that before? I had to take classes in hermeneutics. Didn't have to. I love taking classes in hermeneutics in, in seminary. In fact, I majored in it. But hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. In other words, Jesus expounded the scriptures. He interpreted the Old Testament to them. And Jesus pointed out that the entirety of the Old Testament points to him. It's about him. You know, this is one of those events that I hope we get to see reruns in heaven. Have you ever thought of that? You know, not just seeing the parting of the Red Sea, that would be cool. You know, but, but to sit, as it were, at the feet of Jesus' own feet and, and listen to him. Talk about the Passover lamb and how he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 is emblematic of his substitution and atonement. And then there's the hint of resurrection where Abraham believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. Jesus had told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. You go to the law, you go to the scriptures to find eternal life there. And Jesus said to them, it is these that testify of me. The temple and the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. The manna and the bronze serpent pointed to Jesus. The more that Jesus broke open the word of God with these two disciples, the pulses of these two disciples must have, have raced. And see, in fact, we see in verse 32 here in Luke 24, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? 
He was speaking to us on, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. So they'd gone from slow of heart to believe to burning hearts of belief. This stranger was changing all their expectations and he was establishing that the suffering and the death of their Messiah were not obstacles to Jesus being the Messiah. They were, in fact, proofs and evidences that he is the Messiah. The real Messiah had to suffer. As Jesus taught the scriptures, their confusion and despair melted like the sun does the frost. The scripture became alive. It became sharper than a two-edged sword, searching their hearts, giving them understanding of God's purposes. You know, it would have saved them a lot of grief, and we understand why they didn't get it, if they just believed God's word to begin with. Now they begin to believe the necessity of the passion and the death of Christ and why they had to base their belief, what, solely on Scripture and not on anything else. Now they could begin to understand why the tomb was empty. The study of the Old Testament is a study of Christ. Page by face, page, verse by verse, the Old Testament is a study of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul uses the Old Testament so much in his letter to the Romans. Romans is an exposition of Old Testament scripture. We would say it's good hermeneutics, good hermeneutics. So that brings us finally to our scripture text this morning in in Romans chapter 10. In verses 5 and 8. Where once again we would expect and we would be right that Paul quotes a couple of passages of scripture from the Old Testament. He alludes to one, then he quotes another one to show us the way of salvation. Go to the Old Testament to show us the way of salvation, question mark, the Old Testament. Well, think about it. At Pentecost, when Peter preached that great sermon, that's all the scripture they had. The New Testament was in developing through here. You know, we can take somebody strictly to the Old Testament and show them Jesus Christ. The disciples did it all the time. And Paul here continues to contrast two kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness of the law, which Israel pursued, but they did not attain it. And then there's the righteousness based on faith in Christ, which is attained by the Gentiles. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 10, we see the righteousness by the law. For Moses writes, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Paul alludes to what Moses wrote in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, where the Lord says, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. In other words, whoever relies on his own obedience to the law, whoever relies on his own obedience to the law, is held accountable for everything in the law. He's held accountable for everything the law tells him to do. Salvation by works means not doing meant doing all, not just most or even some of the things the law teaches. If they, and if they had taken the law and compared it with their own lives, they would see they did not and could not keep up with the law. Since they were not meeting the demands, they needed a Savior. And Paul points out in Galatians in particular that the law, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to point them to Christ. We go to the law, we read the commandments, we read all these things. I can't keep those. 
I can't live perfect. And Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right after the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing he said. All those things, I, I, I can't do that. You see, the purpose of the law is to show us that we can't do it. We can't keep the law. If the law had been properly observed, though, it would have taught the Jews that God's way is grace. God's way is grace. And that's the basic understanding of the law. James Denny says it this way in his commentary of Ron Romans. He says, The law was not a collection of statutes, but a revelation of God's character and will. The law was not a collection of statutes, but a revelation of God's character and will. And in other words, it's about God. What are God's, what's God's character and what are his requirements according to his character? And then he continues, And he who sought to keep it did not do so alone, but in conscience dependence on God. Conscience dependence upon God, whose grace was shown above all things else, by the gift of such a revelation. And in contrast to the righteousness by law is the righteousness by faith in Christ. And we see that here in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into the heavens, and that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are, are preaching. And here Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's the, the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 4. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 30 so we can understand what Paul is saying here about the righteousness that is by faith in Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the people of God are about to enter the promised land. And Moses has been telling them how it's going to go for them in the land. How will it go for them if they obey God? And how will it go for them if they disobey God and follow other gods? And Moses warns them that there's going to be a generation that's going to rise up against God. And God will bring his judgment against them. They will worship other gods. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against them. He will uproot them and bring every curse that is written against them. That's a, that's a lot of curses. And they will be cast into another land. And we know historically all that happened. But then the Lord says there's going to be a restoration. The Lord is going to bring them back into the land. And we pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the fourth verse. Moses says, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And then notice how new covenant this promise is going to sound. It's reminiscent of Romans 2.29, where Paul said, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision, that is the outward, uh, the circumcision is not of the outward, but circumcision which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And I just say that so we, we get a feel for what it says here in verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you 
may live. There it is, another summation of the greatest commandment. What sums up all the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. A love which comes out of a love for God, heart, and soul. So it's not an outward obedience going through the motions. But it begins with a heart that is right with God. A heart that loves God. A soul that is given over to God. Then he continues in verse 7. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you, who persecuted you. You know, I'd never get the chance, but if I ever spoke at the UN, this is what I would preach from. Don't you guys realize what is going on here? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be blessed will be cursed. And then he continues in verse 8, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of the ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law. If you turn, the word turn there is shub, which means repent, to turn. To the Lord your God, how? With all your heart and soul. And then beginning in verse 11, verses 11 through 14, is the passage that Paul quotes over in Romans that we'll go back to here in a minute. Verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get us, get it for us, get the commandment for us and make us to hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea and get the commandments for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may Observe it. Unlike the letter of the law, which is impossible to keep and leads to destruction, the commands are kept because the people turn to the Lord God with all their heart and soul. The first commandment, the greatest commandment, rather. They look to God, not to the law and the commandments. They don't have to go looking for the commandments then. You know, they don't have to climb to heaven to find them, is what Moses is saying. They don't have to cross the sea, go the great beyond, as it put there. They are very near in your heart and in your mouth that you may observe them because God has put them there. When you love the Lord and have the circumcision of the heart, not by the letter, but which is of the heart, by the Holy Spirit. So now we go back to Romans chapter 10 and verses 6 through 8 where Paul quotes this very passage. And in Romans 10, beginning at verse 6, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, who we just read, but he does a really cool thing here. I, I know commentators and scholars kind of struggle with this because Paul changes one of the words. So let me set this up by asking, who is the fulfillment of the law? Jesus Christ. Who is the fulfillment of all the commandments? 
Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the commandments perfectly. He's the embodiment of all the commandments. And so where Moses used the word commandment and commandments in Deuteronomy, Paul inserts, instead of commandments, Christ. Christ. Paul substitutes the word Christ, who is the embodiment of perfection, and all the commandments are. So where in Deuteronomy, the commandment is not difficult. The commandments are not difficult. They're not hard to reach. Paul sees this as referring to Christ. Verse 6. But the righteous based on faith, the righteousness based on faith, speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Moses said, you don't have to climb up to heaven to find the commandments and bring them down so you can obey them. Paul says, you don't have to climb up to heaven to find Christ and bring him down. And then verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Moses said, you don't have to go beyond to the, across the great sea to find the commandments and bring them back to obey them. And Paul changes the analogy here a little bit. He says, you don't have to go into the depths or the abyss and what? Bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go to the farthest places to find Christ. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your heart and in your mouth. That is the word of faith which we are are preaching. You know, it's amazing how many people literally or metaphorically climb mountains to find God. Think they're going to find him in one place now. They're to climb mountains to find his will. I, I knew a woman that uh, had actually gone to Tibet and literally climbed a mountain to speak to the Dalai Lama. And then she spoke to him, and she was just so wonderfully pleased with being able to speak to the Dalai Lama. And I asked her, well, what did he say? And she said, compassion. That was it. <laughs> compassion. That, that, that was it. And she was so impressed that she had this piece of great insight or whatever and missed it completely. The righteousness of faith does not require some mystical, esoteric, or impossible journey going through the universe trying to find Christ and trying to find God's will. It doesn't require keeping the commandments and laws that are impossible to keep. Jeffrey Wilson speaks of the perversity of unbelief that is shown by the many who prefer to undertake an impossible odyssey rather than put their trust in an accessible Christ. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, after men have rejected Christ, they'll believe anything. Isn't that the truth? But Paul says, the word of faith which we are preaching is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith. And what is the word of faith? It begins at verse 9, and we're going to leave talking about this till next week because it talks about Christ being raised from the dead. This is the word of faith, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that uh, 
in hearing your word and studying your word and reading your word that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We don't have to go to these great lengths of whatever it is, rules or regulations or finding some secretive knowledge, esoteric thing, Lord, but, but through your word, your Holy Spirit puts it right here to our hearts and to our mouths so we can speak it, Lord. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you make it so simple, so simple to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And Father, I just pray that as we have opportunity to speak the gospel, to share our faith with others, Father, that your Holy Spirit will continue his good work from the word of God. Father, that uh, those whom we love and we care about and have an opportunity to share, Father, will come to the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in his name. Amen.